All right, here we go. Let's pray. The Lord has opened my ear to hear, to hear those who are taught, and I was not rebellious, and I turned not backward. So basically, the Lord speaks, you listen. That's faith. Isaiah 50. Lord Jesus Christ, who walked the way of the cross as an obedient servant of God, open our ears, we beg you, and teach us by your Spirit that we may not rebel, but walk in the obedience of disciples who have learned of you, who with the Father and the Holy Spirit live and reign, one God, world without end. Amen. All right, good. Thanks. Welcome to Lent 2. Um, there was about uh, um, five of these back there. You can take a book if you leave ten bucks. You can take a book if you don't leave ten bucks. Uh, are there still some back there? Look right over your shoulder. There's one, and somebody can have this one. Any, who wants one still? So, one, two, three, four. I'll get a couple more. Vicar, where are you? He's not here. We'll order a couple more. Uh, I just don't want to be caught at the end of the season with a lot of, you know, it was 60 degrees today and we got a lot of winter clothing. So, um, here we go. Uh, Carol Hydron, where do you want to give money to? Yeah, we can give money to Ghana. That's good. Put your name on that, would you? Mark it down a couple of times. We've been light on attendance. Vote early and often. Just kidding. Uh, let's give some money to Ghana. That's always good. Uh, I did send Pastor Finn an email this week just to check on him. I don't know. The guy's interesting. You know, he's, he's an old guy. He must be 80 by now. And in Ghana, that's like a million. Because, uh, I mean, people don't, I mean, the life expectancy, you know, isn't what it is here in Africa. And the, he works like a dog. So um, what a great guy. Okay. So we, yes, Mr. Orton. Okay, let me move to the right, soft shoe a little bit. I'm going to go around the bend. And just say to you, Mr. Orton, in Wheaton, it's like the fountain of youth. So you're like 12, 13 to me, okay? No big thing. And your wife, you know, she's eight. Or eight. All right, so good. Uh, here we go. Uh, so we did last week, you know, we talked about the use of an icon just in general. We use the transfiguration icon. Try to think about all the things you should think about when you come to an icon. You read it, you don't look at it. It's a window, you look through it, it's not a mirror. You're looking at it, it's looking at you. It, meant, it means to tell a story, it means to broaden you. Um, it's not like just a piece of artwork. It's this living, breathing witness to Christ. At least that's the way the church has always understood them. So uh, that has been out of the ken of many Lutherans, but it shouldn't be because all over the world, east and west, icons have been a tremendous uh, blessing to the church, um, extraordinarily valuable, uh, especially in terms of devotional use. And so when we thought about the different ways that we might put things together, we said to ourselves, this would be a nice place maybe to have a starter icon. Um, now, we'll, we'll, you'll take some of your questions. And I, you're going to be interesting. The questions, several of you wrote me questions, which we'll go through. I sort of consolidated them this week, and we'll talk about them. But one of the interesting things about you is you aren't the people that you were when this whole thing started. And that's very, very interesting. So, um, you know, you've gone from saying, what's an icon to, you know, well, I thought in a classic icon you should blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, that's very interesting. Um, so here's the thing, for your next icon, you know, all, all you want. Uh, so here you go. Um, just at the start, uh, well, imagine the task then. So here's this 
you know, what you need to do is represent the image of Christ and the primary image of Christ that you want the congregation to see on a regular basis. So what we did is we hired Elvis Costello. He was between albums. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we said, you know, I know you don't have a gig going right now, so maybe you could. Uh, so here's what happened. You know, we found, the, we found Mel Tam, and we've told you that story, and we're still trying to get her to come along for a Sunday afternoon. Uh, we're comparing schedules right now, so hopefully we'll... So, you know... Once you get to one artist, they know everybody else. There's this spider web of people who all know each other. So one day we end up about five blocks north of the United Center uh, in this broken down, it looks like a broken down, you know, something factory once. You enter inside and it's pristine. It's this, it's floor after floor of artists and they've all got lofts carved out and they've got, you know, workshops and blah, blah, blah. We walk in and this is the guy who's the woodworker. You know, this is your basic hipster woodworker. This looks like Mr. Thompson, my shop teacher in ninth grade. You know, it looks just like him. So, um, you know, this is the day we went. They, they periodically, when you're spending a lot of money, they say you should come and see what we're doing. I think as much to, it's both to encourage, but it's also in case somebody says, whoa, what do you, I mean, we never, ah, e, you know. So um, this was kind of the first step. So we ended up in this tidy little loft, you know, five blocks north of the United Center at Meltem. Um, and this is our, our, our woodworker. So go ahead. Let's see what we got next. And there was the thing like, hey, should we tip it up so you guys can see it? And, of course, the first time you tip it up, you think to yourself, you know, this thing is ginormous. It is, in fact, seven by seven. But you have to, always have to remember the size of the building and also that it is supposed to have some gravitas. Our, you know, it's supposed to have, it's got to hold the room. And it's always difficult to say you know, in advance, you're always trying to imagine, is it going to hold the room? Is it going to work for us? So, you know, they get a couple of guys, they tip it up, and, you're, and then basically, you know, you have this mahogany that matches the pews, and we gave them the, the pew stain, and we said, you know, match this, and then they, they put this um, board surface underneath, and then that becomes the canvas, of course, that she writes on. Let's see what's next. Just the fun thing. So this is, next time you look up there, that's the nimbus. The guy actually cut that on a lathe. So you remember a lathe from your ninth grade wood shop? You know, he's spinning the thing, he's cutting, he's cutting, and then he cuts this bit out. Well, then the next thing is, is that thing is overlaid with 24-karat gold. And you buy the gold in sheets like tissue. It's like a, you, you flip it, and it's like, you know, she's flipping this thing full of gold. And I'm thinking, $1,200 an ounce, $1,300 an ounce, $1,400. I mean, really. And basically what you do is you put it down very gently, and you kind of blow on it, and she has this stylus, and you actually just kind of rub it into the wood. Next time you look at it, you know, it's not paint. It's actually gold that gets pressed into the wood. And that's why when you're putting it up, of course, if you, you know, rub against it, you can rub it right off or at least damage it. But I just wanted to kind of show you that. It's just, it's so interesting how the whole thing gets put together. And then I think I told you, and I can't remember if it was 50 or 60 coats of paint, you know, you put on, you put on this coat, and you put on another coat, and you put on another coat, and you let it dry, and you say your prayers. And for iconographers, there's actually a liturgy that goes with the, with the iconography. You say your prayers, you blow on the paint, you have some fun. Believe me, that kid's fine. Hey, shape up. She's fine. Let her go. And she's going to give her what she wants, you know, a cookie. Somebody give that kid a cookie or chocolate. That would be good. Um, so, you know, that's a great kid. We love that kid. Nora, be, you know, don't, don't make your mom do it to you. All right, so go to the next thing. So then, I th- and I showed you this before. This was sort of our first glance, which was then breathtaking. Because, one, you're going into a studio that's made from a garage. It's kind of like walking into the lofts. You're saying to yourself, 
you know, okay, you're walking into this garage, and it's got, you know, an electric door opener. Well, it needs to have, of course, a huge door because you have to move huge things in and out. And you walk in, you're thinking, I'd like to sublet, you know. I mean, who has a, who has a, just a, this is your fun space, you know, and there's a place for tea, and there's couches, and, you know, a hookah, and blah, blah, blah. Right, so I mean, I know that you. I know that all of you. You know, you keep. You know, you keep your your Japanese kimonos. You know, hung up on the wall for fun. And there, on the other side, there's this giant clown that is a marionette. Anyway, in the middle of that lies Jesus, and um, you can sort of see how things. Uh, and around the outside, these are all. Many of these, not all, I should say, but many of these are are icons that have been painted and have either been kept or they're on order or they're in process. So, you know, you sort of walk in and you go, uh, you know, it's, it's just breathtaking just to kind of see. And, and there's always, as I said to you, with so many of the things, you know, that we didn't, anything that we hadn't seen. Okay, we'd seen the font. We knew we could figure that out. We'd seen the pews. You know, we drove up to a, to a convent in Wisconsin. We'd seen the pews. We'd seen them in Chicago. We'd seen them. We knew pretty well. But anything that we hadn't seen, you're kind of like, now, we had, of course, seen this. If you go into the Loyola chapter, chapel. Meltem was a big part of when the chapel was redone um, a few years ago. She was in charge of several things. Tabernacle, um, some of the mosaics, how things were redesigned. But in any case, if you walk in and you're facing the altar, on the left on the wall is actually the first of these icons. It's probably it's probably, it's not three feet, it's probably two and a half feet um, which she she paint, uh, she wrote, see, even me, so Western, which she wrote on the death of her father, with whom she was very close. And I've told you this story, and she, she'll tell it better when she arrives, about converting from um, being a Muslim to, to being a Christian and you know how she became an iconographer. But in any case, she wrote that icon for that chapel. And then part of the way we took some of the pressure off ourselves was to say, uh, and this is very common, I mean, the way iconographers work, they often... You know, in the way that ancient people, you had a Bible, and then the next guy copied, and they had, you know, a room, and you put a robe on, and you said a liturgy, and you sat down, and if you made one mistake, that sheet over here, and you started over again. You couldn't have any mistakes on your sheet. In, a, in that same way, people who write icons, like writing a text, they, you know, write things over and over again. So the one that we worked with, with the Transfiguration, the one we showed you, was the most famous one. But that you'll see that icon written all over the place. It's part of the way that people learn. They do things over and over again. So we had some measure of um, help. So there we were partway, and one more. Let's see what we got. And then this was kind of the first look. And, um, you, know, you know, we walk in the first day when we see this, and we're like, yeah, this worked, which was very comforting because, of course, um, there's just so many things that could go wrong, and it didn't go wrong. So we were very helpful and uh, or very hopeful when we saw it. This wasn't quite finished, but it was very, very near. Uh, so that was sort of the, and that took, uh, I think w that was probably about a six-month project. It wasn't the only thing, maybe four months, I can't quite remember. There were a few things. She had some a set of icons due for a place in St. Louis, and there were some other things, but we were the primary thing for you know, four to six months, and it was a, a, a remarkable um, spiritual and learning experience. It was very, very, very good. So um, let's see what's next, John. All right, I take you back to the Chimabue, which is next time you're in Florence, you know, pop in and see this. Um, 
This was to be, you know, the one that everybody sort of agrees, people who are artists and smart people kind of figure out, this is the best one that was ever done in the West. I give you, under point two, what it is that you're trying to do. At the center of any liturgy, and when you look around, you will see that the very dominant iconic crosses, just like dominant crucifixes, they hang above or near the altar. You know, they hang higher and lower, but they are put to a dominant use. And you can't, you can't always expect that when you go in, um, you're going to see the icon as close to the altar as ours. Part of the reason ours is so close is we don't have anything else. If you go in Westminster Cathedral, for example, next time you're in London, there is a ginormous icon above, and, and a bit more eastern than western. It's a bit fierce, but it is gorgeous. But it hangs up much higher. Well, part of that is because of the architecture. They have a lot of stuff in the middle. We had a limited budget, so we could only do a few nice things. But the few nice things we tried to do, the pews, the font, the altar, the platform, the icon, the back chapel, what we tried to do is have things that would hold the room for the next generation. When we're all dead and gone, um, the next generation does what they do, and there's plenty of room for them to do it. But we have the basic elements that hold the room. And for us, who are often artistically and liturgically impoverished, although that hardly expresses uh, you know, any sort of adjective about you anymore, but for us who, you know, who have some limited funds, there are things you just have to have. And so we've got the things that you just have to have, and then we can sort of grow into the next things. For example, you know, I suspect that there'll be you know, an icon or two of Mary and St. Saint, Saint John for the back chapel. You know, that was kind of in the original plans. There just wasn't money to do that. There are other things that work around. We've talked for a time or two about Stations of the Cross, but um, you know, we need to talk about that and think about that. Uh, we just have to, right now we're in sort of this, and this is the reason we're spending our time here, is we're just sort of settling into what we've got. And what we want is to get everybody on the same page. I said this to you last week. If somebody walks into the sanctuary with you, what you want to be able to do is say, this circle goes with that circle, goes with that circle, and here's a six and there's an eight, and the six is not so good and the eight is fantastic, and that points up here, and you get this, and this comes down, and that goes up, and this all pulls together, and we stretched it this way, we pushed it back that way, and you should be able to sort of, and this is where I live. You know, this is your house. This is where you live. But, of course, it's God's house, and you're just renters. So, um, you know, you're, you want to be able to own this space. And when you own it, when you're comfortable with it, when it's yours, when you can go through the liturgy without thinking about it, okay, it's up, down. And what you're thinking about is, oh, i got to remember, this is the point where kneel. When you're done thinking about that, and then when you kneel and you say to yourself, it's Lent too. It's time to honestly examine myself. Or in Easter, you will say, just so this is a heads up, you don't kneel in Easter for the 50 days. So what's going to happen is in Easter, you're all going to start to kneel, and there's going to be a lot of people doing like this, like, okay? So we don't kneel during Easter because it's this great period of rejoicing. So everybody, everybody, the kneelers just go away for 50 days, right? The hallelujah comes back, the kneelers go away, it's a big party. So anyway, those are the things you need to own as your own, and then when you start to own that and you have this great basis, then you can push to the next thing. Churches that never, congregations that never get the basis never push to the next thing. You can go your whole life without ever learning anything, without being stretched, without being moved, without understanding. Your life will be completely enriched now wherever you go all over the world. When you step into a church, into a cathedral, you will say, and your kids will say more importantly, I know what's going on. And what will happen is, especially in your kids, 
they will develop this sense of they know what's going on and it's happened everywhere in the world and they belong to something bigger than themselves and now you're all the way back to beauty and spirituality and justice and community. They will understand that they belong to a bigger community called the One Holy Catholic Apostolic Church. Make sense? And all of that is out of the icon and that's just the baseline you've got to know before you even start. How are you doing? You still Okay. So I just remind you then under point two, you know, at the center of any liturgy, any Eucharist, any community, any Christian life is Christ in the flesh. That is the great difference between Christianity and every other religion. You know, even in Buddhism you have, you know, occasional, occasional appearances of the divine in the flesh, but always temporary. The difference between Christianity and everything else is that God loves you so much he takes the flesh and he keeps it. So you'll be very comfortable in heaven because you will look just like Jesus, except for those little marks here and here. Okay, so you will say when you get to heaven, I'm home. Part of the reason you'll know you're home, warm, safe, and dry, is because you will look like Jesus and he will look like you. Okay, make sense? So I just give you this great text from Philippians. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy, and that's what the church is meant to be about, complete my joy, by being of the same mind, community, right? You share the same presuppositions, the same mind, you savor the same things, having the same love, honesty, and also being bound together, being in full accord and of one mind. So, you know, to have division in the church is really an aberration. If you grew up in a church that was always a fist fight, or if you're in a church that was always troubled, that's an aberration. The way the church is meant to be is to be one community of one mind, and the one mind is to confess Christ. Which is why you've got to study, 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 think, 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 pray, 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 talk, talk, talk. One of the great troubles of living in Wheaton, one of the great troubles of being a Protestant, which we aren't, but being surrounded by Protestants is this great individualism, me and my Jesus. That's nowhere in Scripture. He does, in fact, give it to you individually, and people are saved individually, but they're always saved individually for community. So the one-mindedness, it doesn't mean that people can't disagree. They can disagree, and different congregations can spend their resources in different ways. However, um, you can't ever have a fist fight. And as soon as you have a fist fight, it's marked that everything has gone wrong and everybody's lost their focus on Christ. And so, of course, the answer then is, if you have a fist fight, the way you get refocused is to look at Christ again, especially on the wounds of Christ. And so the thing that holds you together, the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ pierced on the cross, that is the thing. You know, that has to be the most prominent thing. And that's why the Eucharist is at the center of the liturgy. Because everything you need is right there every week. And so we have to extol that. We have to proclaim that. You walk in, everything has to say that. You baptize people who just went by that big font. This is where you get rebooted. That's what has to happen. And this, I mean, it's just right here in the text. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, and that keeps coming up for Lent, because every sin is pride, you see. Every pride is I know better. So in humility, which means obedience, which means follow Jesus, count others more significant than yourselves. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's straight Jesus stuff. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
community, right? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, given to you as a gift. Who, now just a little aside, try to remember who Christ is, though he was in the form of God, second person of the Trinity, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't say, no, I'm not going. I won't be incarnate. And if I get incarnate, if I get flesh incarnate, if I get in flesh, everybody will think less of me for the rest of my life. If you think of the great heresies, if you think of the great... One of the most insulting things you can say to Jesus is that he's only humanity, that he's any other man. This is what Philippians 2 is talking about. People look at Jesus and say he really wasn't the son of God. He's just another guy. He's just another good teacher. That's the risk that Jesus took when he takes flesh. That from forever, people will think of him, he's just another guy. Knowing that risk, he doesn't say to the Heavenly Father, I'm sorry, I'm not going. What he says is, I'd gladly go, because why? He counts your interest more important than his interest. So Paul's not telling you to do anything that Jesus hasn't done. Jesus is marked by the fact that he puts you, he loves you more than he loves himself. And for that reason, he takes flesh and blood, so that you'll never be alone and you'll never be unloved. Okay? Have this mind among yourselves, yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of the God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. See that right there? That's nothing. That's execution. Taking the form of a servant. You can't be more servant than when you're unjustly accused to let people kill you. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. What's the difference between Jesus and everybody else? Jesus is the only person that ever lived who could do what he was told. Every one of us, every, all the rest of us, there's not one of us who can do what we're told. Jesus is the only human being who ever lived who could do what he was told. For the rest of us, there's always rebellion. So the father says to the son, you go. And the son says, I will. And he suffers every temptation, even as you do, but without failing. So in Gethsemane, he says, this is going to be extraordinarily difficult. Is there some other way? To which the father then says, no, this is the only way through. To which he then says, not your will, but mine be done. And then the disciples say stupid stuff like, we want to be just like you. And then Jesus says to him, can you drink the cup that I'm able to drink? Yeah, we can drink it. And he's like, stupid, stupid, stupid men. See? So, you know, the difference between Jesus and everybody else is he does what he's told. Right? Therefore God has exalted him. Now here's the other side of the coin. When you do everything that you're told, God will not destroy you. And this is ordinary part of what you have to see and people you know people argue about you know you should have an open cross and it should be an empty cross is not the mark of the resurrection an empty tomb is the mark of the resurrection you need this because this is the part that you forget this is the part that i forget everybody's good with easter everybody's good with joy that's easy especially because we mistake our own joy and our own celebration for his joy and celebration This is the part that we need to remember. In utter obedience, he dies. 
And then God exalts him. He doesn't raise himself from the dead. Passive verb. The father raises the son from the dead. I know it's talked about both ways, but you can, if you have the passive verb, then you can have the active, but not the other way around. So the father raises him from the son. This is how you know, just as an aside, in your own troubles in life, when you're the one who gets diagnosed, when it's your kid that's hurt, you know, when you lose your job, when things go badly for you, there's only a single question. The single question is whether or not God wants to destroy you. When evil comes into your life, the question is, and it's evil whether it's evil that is, that hits you from the blind side, you get mugged on the street, or evil that comes to you because you've been a gossip forever and finally you've got no friends left. Okay, either one of those. When you're in deep pain, the question is, there's a single question. When you suffer, does God mean to destroy you? That is, does he mean to send you down to the depths of hell? It is finished. Does he mean to do that or not? That's the only question when you suffer. The answer is no. How do you know that? He's adopted you. You've been baptized. He's put that body and that blood into you, and so you are indestructible. When you die, you cannot be destroyed. Why? Because you are in communion with Christ on the cross. As Paul says, I bear the wounds of Christ in my body. It means he got beat up. It also means he went to the Eucharist. So when the Lord looks at you, you bear his same name. You're a prodigal son, but you're a son nonetheless. And you bear the body and blood that cannot be destroyed. So the answer is no, he will not destroy you. And then after that, the answer is actually... It's great to be a genius. Did you read the first margin comment today? That's by the woman who wrote The Little Prince, right? That's a genius margin comment. She basically says, unless he means to destroy you, it must be love. And love can be painful. Love can also be joyful. But if he doesn't mean to destroy you, it means somewhere on the far end, there's resurrection. So when evil comes into your life, you say, does he mean to destroy me? Yes, no. No. Therefore, whatever I receive comes to me in love. And even our deepest, most difficult things have a way then of, and now you can fill in the blanks, purifying you as by fire, moving you from milk to meat, blessing you with wisdom, all the ways the scriptures talk. That's all bundled up in the icon. You have to write an icon that says all of that. And an icon without a body just doesn't say that. It leaves you to your imagination. And frankly, your imagination isn't very good. Nor is mine, because we're not that focused. We're, we're too self-interested. We need an external thing that draws our attention, that changes us. Got it? So therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, which is why we kneel, and also why when we say the Trinitarian name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you see people bow. This is the reason you genuflect, we genuflect at the altar, because when the name is present, Jesus is present. So if Jesus is present, then you bend your knee. I mean, he even says, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, which means even the demons have to bend their knee at the name of Jesus. So if even the demons are bending their knee, you know, why wouldn't you kneel, genuflect, bow? I mean, you can take it as a curse, but that's complete pride. You bow when the queen enters the room, you know, you curtsy. 
I mean, if the president came, you would be utterly deferential. Presidents change out every four years. This is eternal. So at the name of Jesus, every knee bows, and we observe that at different parts. We make the sign of the cross. We go to our knees a couple of different times, one when we confess, one when the body and blood appears on the altar. Some seasons we don't do that. Why not? Are we disobedient? No. We just know that sometimes you need to break the rhythm. And to have the high points, you have to have the low points. To have the low points, you have to have the high points. So we're going to throw you off your game a little bit in Easter when we don't kneel. We're going to do that intentionally. And then 50 days in, we're going to start kneeling again, throw you off again. Why does it do that? Because it's sort of, by changing your whole physicalness, it changes what you're thinking about. And you have to think about, why am I kneeling? Why am I not kneeling? All of that is the daunting task of writing an icon that every tongue confess. So... Every tongue confesses this Jesus Christ to the glory of the Father. And glory, as you remember, is holiness. Glory is the word when the holiness of heaven comes to earth. We talk about it as glory. Okay? So you've got to know all of that before you even get started. Yes, David? Right. Yeah, I know. So I just thought I'd try to slip that by you. Um... Uh, here's the thing. No, actually, no, this is good. I just, that's making, I don't, Mueller, I fear Mueller. Um, wasn't the music great again? It's really interesting. I mean, I, no, I'm being really serious. I mean, it's just like, you, you, it's like you've died and gone to heaven. Um, we get in these periods where everything works, and then we, you know, we have, uh, however, when we have some, a couple of weeks where things, like, we're like, all oh, look at each other, like, what just happened? But we're in this, we're in this groove right now where everything is working. We're like, thank you very much. Um, so here's the thing. Always remember, we didn't quit. They kicked us out, right? I mean, I mean, they kicked us out. Uh, and so there's two ways. Once you get kicked out, there's two ways that people kind of think about themselves. One is as an exile. So in exile, if you think about people in exile, they always look to go home, right? The other way that people think about um, being kicked out is an emigre. Okay, you kick me out, that's the end of you. You don't want to go to the prom with me? I'm taking you out of my palm, okay? Right? You're out of my, off my contact list. Lutherans should think of themselves as exiles. We're waiting to go home because we know there's one holy Catholic apostolic church. We never asked to leave. We just said, you've really kinked the hose. Uh, you know, and, and things are really, really out of whack. Let's get things back in whack and, you know, move on. Um, Protestants say, forget about that. We can be church, we can be our own denominations, we can have our own ministry, we can have our Eucharist, we can interpret things differently, it doesn't have to be the body and blood, baptism is not that big, blah, blah, blah. You get all this range of stuff, right, that seems to come detached from the one holy Catholic apostolic church. So that's one way to answer it. I, myself, am an exile, always looking to go home. It's not going to happen in my lifetime. But it could happen in a couple hundred years as denominations break down and as people are more honest. Even now you see you know, more and more things. You hear much more talk in the Catholic Church about grace, about forgiveness, about, you know, there are still things that make you wild and you can read part, and you just like, but then, the, believe it or not, there are things I read about the Missouri Center that makes me wild, <laughs> right? So we're not, I don't consider myself, and emigres, they sort of dig in and say, we're our own separate church. That's not in the scriptures. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, when he talks about 
denominations. He talks about it already. Paul, Apollos, all these people. I belong to Apollos. He actually says, well, it's good because you show error, Reformation. But he also, it's a brokenness of the church that's supposed to happen. The other thing is, is Protestants were, it's a tag put on, on people, like Lutheran. Lutheran was to really, if you called somebody a Lutheran in the 16th century, you were really sort of, that was a that was a bad thing to say about somebody. And that's what people called him. And you remember occasionally we run the margin comment about Luther where he says, don't call yourself Lutherans. Are you people crazy? You're Christians. But then he says, if you want to say you're Lutheran because you confess the Christ that I confess, then you can use my name. But otherwise, remember he has this great phrase where he says, I'm just a bag of maggots and you should find somebody else. Right? We run that every couple of Reformation days. Lutherans are their own subset. And the reason is they're liturgical and sacramental, and they didn't want to go anywhere. Protestants are usually, and, and are looking to return, Protestants are usually saying, um, the Catholic Church, Catholic small c, the, the church from zero to 1500 just had it so screwed up we have to start over. So it depends whether you're an inventor or an innovator, if you want to put it another way. Lutherans say you've got to get a wrench on this in here, and, and as soon as we get these things kind of figured out, you know, everything comes back together. Protestants say, no, that, is, that project is so broken, it's a new project. The problem with that is it's very difficult to make sense of John 15 to 17 where God prays for one, Jesus prays for one church. And if you stop looking for that, you know. So we have this tension, and you're an elder here, and I'm a pastor here, and it's difficult because we have this tension, which is we have to say what's true. We can't compromise that, and we're always pressed to compromise that. And yet, on the other hand, we always want one thing. And so part of our thing as Christians is, this is why I've said so often to you, be defined by what you love and not by what you hate. It doesn't do a lot of good to point at other denominations or even people in your own denomination and say, those blah, 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 you know. I mean, it just doesn't, it doesn't, you can clearly, without anger, with honesty, say, we disagree with you here. And one of the marks of being an adult is you can disagree, I mean, you would think the entire United States run by two-year-olds. Because one of the marks of being a civilized adult is that you can disagree with people on the point and stick to the point and not try to denigrate, you know, sway opinion, blah, blah, blah. Plato had this with the sophists. So the thing is always to say what's true and keep going. Mr. Mooma, did you have a comment? It probably, probably not 50, 60 years ago in America, but 50, 60 years is like, you know, I've often, you know, the church measures itself in hundreds of years kind of in its shortest period, and a, and a thousand years is a good healthy period of time. So, and often what I find interesting about Lutherans is they often don't say what Luther said. They make this big deal about what they, they're Lutherans, but they don't say what Luther said or the confession said. And so 50, 60, 70 years ago, uh, probably they would not... There's a run of reasons of that from World War I, where the Germans were the problem, and oh yeah, World War II, where the Germans were the problem, and guess what, we're the German church, right? <laughs> so, you know, that's how you got, that's how we got individual cups, and that's how we got, you know, it used to be, I think this, isn't this, thank you, isn't this congregation, St. John Evangelical English Lutheran Church, Right? It's in our official name to show that we're not those German kind of Lutherans, right? So, yes, you're exactly right. However, that's such a short period of time. You know, what I've always tried to do, I mean, partly why I'm saying to you is, you know, start with the 
Start with, this is, I think this is 1580 or something like that, 1563, I can't remember, but I'm, I'm sort of saying to you, I'm trying to broaden our collective understanding of how we talk about the church. So, and one of the real, I'll just tell you, one of the real problems I have here is that people remember Lutheranism as taught to them in eighth grade by their confirmation pastor and no Lutherans had this notion that you got all the stuff you needed by eighth grade, you put a period out of the and then you spent your life enforcing that on other people, right? Where is that in Scripture? You know? So let's go here, and then I'll try. Karen, get, uh, sum up. Go ahead, David, quickly, because we got to... That's right. And it's always this collective thing. You remember the creeds always began, we believe. And then they changed to I believe. But the original text of the creed is we believe. We as a community believe. And you have to have this tension between... It's for me. I mean, you can't just coast along with everybody else and never make any commitment. On the other hand, we've lived in an age for 100 or 200 years in America where your own commitment was the only thing, and you could, you could, you could take a powder as if the rest of the church never existed. Karen, write me an email. Um, here's your assignment for, the next, uh, for next week. Take a picture of the icon. I just want you to look at it. Spend a couple of minutes when you say your prayers. Just look at the icon and see what it... Not what you see in it, but see what's the icon telling you, okay? And then we can talk about the different pieces of what's happened in the icon. You have what I'm going to say in front of you. You can take a look at that if you like. Basically, what I'm going to say, use a template like Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53 for what has to be here, and then ask yourself, and I've sort of run you through the last words on the cross, um, with, uh, you know, guided by you know, Cardinal Ratzinger, now Benedict, but it's, everybody kind of agrees it's the best thing written in the last 10 or 20 years. So I, I sort of give you that. That has to be reflected in the icon because that's the center of faith. Um, and I sort of pulled the things that we might agree on, okay? Send me a, an email. Um, we got to go. I got 12 till, 13 till, is that right? So here we go. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven... Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.